This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Podcast of Rare Antiquities, episode 31. Today, we analyze those who may be a couple of cans short of a six-pack as we discuss the 2002 psychological thriller, Frailty. My name is Harry, and I'll be your host for today's show. And my name is Jeff, I will be your co-host. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm doing good, man. It's great to be back on the show, and you know, it's nice to get a chance to pay a little tribute to our good friend, what's his name? <laughs> Hudson. No, Paxton. <laughs> no, I, I just, I mean, he's... Kind of one of those guys who doesn't get, who never got the recognition he deserved, perhaps, as an actor. And so it's nice to have a show where we can pay a little tribute to him. It's unfortunate he's no longer with us, but sure gave us a lot to watch over the years. So why don't we just talk about him now? He's a great character actor. Yeah, definitely doesn't give a lot of recognition. I mean, most of the time people just remember him as, you know, Hudson from Aliens or the Dick in True Lies or his brief and yet brilliant cameo in the original Terminator. And that's pretty much from Geekland what a lot of people think of Bill Paxton that you know that that's it but he's mm-hmm. done quite a bit more in his life and in his filmography and you know James Cameron utilized him quite a bit and you know a couple of those movies are James Cameron movies that I mentioned but you know he was utilized by James Cameron quite a bit and then you know he made a lot of other movies that are fairly recognizable but sometimes a little bit more on the obscure side how about yourself? When you think of Bill Paxton, what do you remember with respect to well, I guess my favorite Bill Paxton character is Hudson from Aliens. I mean, that's just that was such a great performance that he that he gave there. And that's one of my favorite movies. So that one obviously jumps to mind. I loved him as the sleazeball car salesman in True Lies. I, I, that was a, also a really good performance. He has that ability, just the way his face is, the way, you know, his smile is. He can look like a real dirtbag and pull it off. Unlike, not quite like anybody else can. He's great and, charisma. He's a scene stealer in a nutshell. You he can is put him in stealer, any yeah. movie and he's just a scene stealer. And I'm surprised he didn't get a lot more leading role and I'm not sure as to why that is. Maybe he just got shoehorned because, you know, he played these kind of side characters. Yeah. And that's a little unfortunate, but... I mean, we did review Near Dark late last year, and he stole the show in that movie, and he was pretty much what you could consider the lead, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, he was he was at least the lead antagonist, anyway, in that movie, and he was terrific in that as well. I mean, the scene in the bar there was absolutely terrific in that. I think, you know, to be a lead, I mean, part of it, you know, when you're dealing with the confines of Hollywood, he, he doesn't have the leading man good looks that they like. I always thought he was shorter, but the funny thing is, is when he stands next to other stars who are legitimately tall he's standing right with them unless he's sitting on a soapbox or he's got like wearing heels i don't think it was a size thing i think it was maybe you're just right it's just maybe too much character in his face yeah he didn't have he doesn't have the traditional good looks of your you know traditional hollywood leading men and that's probably a lot of it it's certainly not ability because he's an excellent actor lots of charisma but i almost prefer it that way i mean we've got lots of leading men and they're all pretty cookie cutter bill paxton is the salt on my egg whites so i'd much rather have it that way is that a good thing <laughs> yeah well who wants to eat egg if you, you well, eat I eggs put, i put pepper man so i don't know what the fuck you're you gotta about. have both i'm just you know i'm just saying he's a spice on my food you know He's not the leading, he's not the egg, like the egg is the leading role, but, you know, without the salt, I mean, then it's just an egg. Okay. (laughs) Maybe you're hungry. Get into this movie. But we talk about frailty. Yeah. What are your memories? I mean, I recall that, again, we've talked about it before, we were working in a movie theater together, and I believe around now, can't remember if I was still working there, maybe towards the tail end at this time, and I was about to leave, but I think I had left. What do you remember about Frailty? You know, all I could remember when you brought it up was I could see the poster in my head. Matthew McConaughey's, like, face or half his face on the poster, and there's, like, birds or bats or something flying across. 
And that was pretty much it. I wasn't sure if I had or hadn't seen it when brought it up. And then, you know, after watching it here, I definitely did not watch it. Well, you, this is the first time you've seen it. Yeah, I had not. This will be interesting then. Okay, that'll be good. So that's about it. I mean, I I mean, I just remembered kind of a psychological thriller, something to do with somebody hunting demons or something. I never watched it. You know, I wasn't a Matthew McConaughey fan. So it just flew right by me almost completely unnoticed okay so how about let's get into matthew mcconaughey you know every boy's favorite wet dream i don't know about true it's true it's true yeah i think it's true for you i'm not a matthew mcconaughey fan i just find you know he just comes across as one of those just very egotistical actors you know you don't know the guy in person i'm just saying this is how i feel he is portrayed and how he portrays himself and and i really haven't enjoyed a lot of his roles so, you know, that's kind of two strikes against him for me. And maybe I'm a little biased and that's the case. That's fine. I haven't seen Dallas Buyers Club and I know he did win an Oscar for that. And if it is a great performance in which it's earned, that's great and good for him. And, and he deserves all the credit in the world. But beyond that, in which, again, I haven't seen, I haven't seen that movie. I can't recall a thing that I did like him in. I know you're a true detective fan. And while I did enjoy season one, I felt Woody was more of the star for me and the main attraction. What about Matthew McConaughey for you? Is there, what do you think as an actor? Any movies you particularly enjoy? What about those fucking Lincoln commercials that he does? Jesus. <laughs> okay, Talk there about... Is, there is one movie I do like. Yeah, the Lincoln commercials are a little... You know, that's again... Just, I don't, well, I don't talk it. about coming across like you're a total douchebag. You know, like doing those things. Those commercials. You know, we already know you're an elite, white, you know, rich, white douchebag. Like, you, you don't need to advertise the fact that you are such, you know. So that's... Those commercials kind of bug me a bit. I am a fan of his. He's done... So many terrible movies. Can't even count them all. I mean, the string of romantic comedies, that movie Sahara, I remember that. I remember, I don't think I've watched it. I remember remember coming out. Yeah. A Time to Kill, I think, is generally well regarded, although I hate it because I think it panders to its audience. And also is uh, directed by Joel Schumacher, if I'm not mistaken. So I think there's uh, one movie that I do enjoy, and it's not really a testament to him, even though I think he did an okay job. It's more of a guilty pleasure as Reign of Fire, the dragon. Oh, I'm right with you there. Yeah, yeah. He was like, yeah, he didn't. No, I, he I, stole, he I think he it. stole the show from Christian Bale in that one. Bale played it pretty straight. Yeah. And just kind of like, you know, the reluctant hero. and But he was kind of the star of that movie. I agree. He just went for it because that yeah. movie is so ridiculous. Yeah. I just love and the he, ending. I just love how he meets his demise. I'm just going to stab this dragon as I fly into his mouth. And then, yeah. and then he just dies. <laughs> it's like smooth. Oh, yeah. Smooth movie. Great. Ball. <laughs> That's a great standout for him. And yeah, I was a real big fan of True Detective, and I thought he was great, and not to take anything away from Woody in that, because I think I agree with you that Woody was probably the more standout performance there, because you don't really see that coming out of Woody Harrelson. I love Matthew McConaughey because he, I mean, they did a great job with the makeup, you know, between the two time periods. That was probably a big part of the performance that stood out for me in that show. But I thought he did a good job uh, playing kind of both, you know, the young, disillusioned man and then the older, more disillusioned illusion man afterwards i thought was pretty cool so but yeah i think he has a lot of talent i think he has a lot of charisma is certainly more your traditional leading man and it is a bit surprising to me that it's kind of only now that he's figured out i don't know if it's just how he he figured out how to choose the right script you know to make Uh, interstellar i liked although he didn't you know he didn't really do too much in that as from a performance standpoint i thought he was you know was good in it i liked that movie but yeah you know i i'm a fan uh i don't seek him out but i'll go watch him all right you got a name and you can't include this one in case it is one of your more favorite so you can't give your thoughts away. You named your favorite Bill Paxton movie, which is Aliens. Name your favorite Matthew McConaughey. You got to go off the top of your head. I already said Rain of Fire. What's yours? My favorite Matthew McConaughey movie? Because of the movie or because of him? Because of him. I think you'd have to do it that way. And you can't say True Detective. Got to be a movie. And I think that proves <laughs> my point. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I was just thinking, like, I really like his brief cameo in Wolf of Wall Street. That put a smile on my face. Okay, yeah. You know what? That's... I mean, uh, it was, it was okay. the one scene, but no, it was no, that, really... That he was good there. Yeah, that was funny. We'll go with Wolf of Wall Street. Let's talk about the genre. This frailty is a psychological thriller, and we've already done ones that we could qualify into that category on the podcast. You know, The Game, Brazil, Jacob's Ladder. What are your thoughts on the genre, and what are your favorite psychological thriller movies out there? And what are the strengths of this genre and its weaknesses or, or drawbacks? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that the strengths and drawbacks are you can really play a lot with perception of reality when you're playing around in this genre. So, you know, Jacob's Ladder, I thought, did a good job, maybe not for the whole runtime, but for part of it where you're questioning what's really going on. The game is much the same way. And you can, if you're a good filmmaker, you can really effectively use that to build suspense and tension slowly over the course of your film without having to resort to, you know, shootouts, explosions, violence, score, scares, anything. You can really just, if we're a good filmmaker, the right shot, the right lighting, the right performance, and you can really turn up the heat in so many subtle ways. And I, I think that's my favorite part of the genre. And done well, you know, you're always asking questions. You never know what's around the corner. So I think those are the strengths. The weaknesses, though, is that most of these movies, they tend to fall into the same tropes. And I think part of that has to do with, you know, just the three-act structure of a movie. They can play around in the first two acts, and then, you know, you got to wrap it up, and then everything tends to play out in much the same Exactly, way, and right? it falls into that trap where you have to kind of have a twist. Mm -hmm. And I think these kind of thrillers worked before, you know, 60s, 70s. I mean, if you can consider, say, you know, Psycho, Vertigo, Psycho has a bit of a twist at the end. Even though it's classified more as a horror movie, you could still say it's kind of a psychological thriller. I mean, Vertigo is another one. But then you have other big movies, you know, that came after Fight Club 7, Usual Suspects. I guess a Fight Club, I guess you would call that a, a psychological thriller. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Memento is another one. But they're always like, they always have these kind of twists that you now expect in the end. As these movies have now come and gone, I think that's probably one of the major drawback of the, the genre is because the great thing is, is you can be creative in how you structure the movie and people are second guessing and they're, you know, they're, they're on the edge of their seats and they're invested and you could be very creative to draw somebody in. But as you, you're right, when that third act hits, everybody's trying to look for clues prior to then. And then they're trying to guess what that twist is going to be now. And yeah. it'll be interesting. I'm interested to hear your thoughts if frailty falls into that same trope and trap as well. So yeah, we'll get to that. So as far as like my favorites of the genre, I think the game is probably my favorite of the genre. Fight Club is another one that's up there for me as well. And I think like as far as I like all of Alfred Hitchcock's work pretty much, I don't know that I could single one out, although Vertigo would be a great example, I think, of a, of a psychological thriller. So those are some of the, the high marks for the genre for me. But what about you? Yeah, no, well, my favorite definitely out of the whole bunch is American Psycho. I, I love that movie. Mm -hmm. It's not just a psychological thriller. It's also part satirical. And that's yeah. what I love about that. And I think I can still classify it as a psychological thriller. If I cannot, then Fight Club probably would be, or Psycho, the original Psycho. Again, some of these are gray area. Definitely Fight Club's a definite psychological thriller. Psycho is a horror borderline psychological thriller. So if I can put it in that genre, I'll say Psycho as well. Otherwise, I'll just say, you know, American Psycho and then Fight Club. I would put those in psychological thriller territory. Psycho, in fact, the first one doesn't have a whole lot of horror elements to it, really. Not it, really. But it is pretty much categorized as a horror. Yeah, across the board, so. right? So yeah. that's the thing. So those are my favorites. With respect to frailty, I mean, I didn't mention I had seen this. I can't recall if it was in the theater. Might have been. I might have gone with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. I do remember this movie, and I have not seen it probably since it was in theaters. So I had indefinite memories from this movie, like certain images that popped out, especially when it related to Bill Paxton and like just him holding the axe and kind of remembering him being a bit crazy and off the wall and killing people. Couldn't remember the reasons why or anything else or how it ended. But once this movie started, it's like, oh yeah, I remember everything now. It started mm -hmm. and I'll come back. So mm -hmm. any other thoughts or should I get into the plot summary? Let's jump in. All right. 
In what very well could be the true behind-the-scenes story of the Flanders family, we see a gentleman named <laughs> Fenton Meeks as he visits FBI agent Wesley Doyle, claiming he has information on the God's Hand serial killer. Fenton informs Agent Doyle that the killer is in fact his brother Adam, but Adam has since committed suicide, prompting Fenton to come clean about the killings, and that he has buried his brother in the Rose Garden near their childhood home, which is also the gravesite of all the other victims of the God's Hand. Agent Doyle is doubtful of the story, and decides to handcuff Fenton and drive them both to Fenton's hometown of Thurman to check on the gravesite. During the drive, Fenton continues his story of how it was their father who received a vision from God when Fenton was young, telling him to kill demons. God would provide the tools and a list of names to his father over the course of a few days. The Meeks boys just thought their dad had dreamt this whole thing up, and this whole thing would go away. But their father then soon tells them God gave him an axe named Otis Berg? A pipe, gloves, <laughs> and soon starts to tell the boys of names of those who must be destroyed. Fenton is trying to convince Adam to run away, but they don't want to leave their father. The story continues as young Fenton awakes in the middle of the night, seeing his father carrying someone to their backyard shed. Both Fenton and Adam come to the shed, and Fenton pleads with his father not to kill the middle-aged woman. Their father touches the woman on the head, and he goes into convulsions and is frightened. Did he just see the trailer for Batman and Robin? Or did God just grant him a vision of her evil deeds? Despite Fenton's protests, their father kills the woman in front of them with the axe. Adam reveals he believes his father, and can see her as a demon, but Fenton cannot. Fenton is in disbelief when his father also tells him that God believes Fenton to be a demon, and should also be slayed, but his father believes Fenton will soon start to believe in their righteous cause. As part of his trial, Fenton is forced to dig a large hole for a demon-slaying cellar in their backyard, in which their shed will be on top of it. Fenton ain't got time to bleed, and he finishes the job swiftly. Father then wants Fenton to assist in the slaying of the next demon. In a parking lot in pure daylight, they set their targets on Grandpa Simpson. The father is convinced that God will hide the abduction, and miraculously, they abduct the elderly man and take him to the cellar without anyone noticing. Fenton pleads not to have him killed and runs away to grab the town sheriff. A Sith? Lord? The sheriff proclaims, and Fenton takes him back to the cellar only to find it empty. Fenton's father then kills the sheriff as Fenton tells the sheriff about the Rose Garden gravesite. The father is furious. He admits he just killed a man, not a demon, and it's Fenton's fault. He locks Fenton in the cellar for days. After days of starvation and dehydration, the father lets Fenton out and Fenton feigns belief in their righteous mission. After assisting in the abduction of another man, the father wants Fenton to kill the demon. After giving the axe to Fenton, Fenton spins and expertly axe-chops his father. Just before his father dies, he whispers something into Adam's ears. Fenton knows exactly what his father said and simply tells Adam, If you are going to destroy me, promise to bury me in the Rose Garden. Then before Fenton can release the helpless abductee, Adam comes running in with the axe to kill the helpless victim. The story ends with adult Fenton and Agent Doyle arriving at the Rose Garden where Adam and the God's Hands victims are buried. As Agent Doyle is looking around, he is questioning the story of how Adam would destroy Fenton. Yet Adam committed suicide. Fenton then reveals he is in fact Adam, and he did in fact destroy Fenton. Adam touches Agent Doyle on the head and has a vision that Agent Doyle killed his own mom in the past, and Doyle is on God's hit list. Due to the God's hand touching his head, Agent Doyle becomes weak and falls into an open grave. Agent Doyle says Adam won't get away with this as people saw him in the FBI office as they left. But Adam isn't worried. He knew his destiny because the kids always called him Mr. Glass. Adam then kills Agent Doyle. It's later revealed that Adam's presence in the FBI office is obscured by videotape static and people cannot remember his face. Looks like he truly is the God's hand and is a demon slayer, like his father before him. The end. So, based on that, Jeff, any thoughts on the synopsis or even considering that, what kind of movie is this for you a definite psychological thriller? Is this something worthy to see on the big screen or how simple of a story is this for you? Well, it sounds pretty simple. It doesn't, from the synopsis, sound much like a psychological thriller. That's what it feels like to me. It, it feels like a bit of, I might expect it to be more of like a supernatural horror movie, just listening to the synopsis. It seems pretty straightforward just from the synopsis. So yeah, but no, let's, let's do some trivia. All right. Film was released in '02 with a budget of 11 million. It only made 17 million worldwide, so you could consider this not really a success by any means. This was released around the time when Mad Mel's We Were Soldiers was out, Blade Two, Ice Age, and strangely enough, the thriller Panic Room, mm. which was made, released maybe a couple of weeks before this one, and then a couple of weeks after, this was followed by Sam Raimi's Spider Man a few weeks after that. So not much of a surprise it didn't make a lot of money. The story is loosely based on American serial killer Joseph Callinger, who murdered three people with his 15-year-old son. He pleaded sanity, saying God told him to kill these people. 
some fan theories out there have speculated why the axe had the name or marking of Otis. I mean, for me, I'll always just think Otisburg, but because why not? <laughs> but some fans believe this to be an acronym for only the innocent survive. It was actually Paxton's idea to put a name on the axe just to give it a bit more uh, mystery. And as you're aware, Paxton did direct this movie and you know, we'll talk about how he did as we go through at the end. Paxton originally intended for the demon's crimes to be shown to the audience with the first victim after his character had touched them. But a suggestion from James Cameron was to keep it a surprise for the end. And you may have noticed that Paxton's character was drinking Ham's beer. This beer was pretty popular in the States in the 50s and 60s, but they still have uh, a couple of breweries, but they are not as popular as obviously other beers out there. And in fact, this production had trouble procuring more than one can for the production, so they kept reusing <laughs> the same can in multiple shots. So, so that's pretty much it's interesting that it went like the release window, you know, because I remember like Panic Room was Fincher's follow up to Fight Club. So I seem to recall that, you know, with Jodie Foster, it was fairly hotly anticipated. So when you got the hammer of that and the anvil of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, I don't know why you choose to release your movie in. Uh, so that must have been April or May, right, of 2002. Yeah, I, I guess you're before studios too. Who knows who put their slot down first, right? Yeah, that's true. It's, so it's be frailty, you know, said, OK, we're taking this week and nothing was there. And then, oh, then all of a sudden, several months later, you know, the year before or whatever it is. And, you know, the other movies start claiming their spots and then you're either kind of stuck to it and committed. Um, I don't know what, you know, who knows what kind of costs there are. But I agree with you. It's If you had the flexibility and we see movies today move their schedules around, maybe not at the last minute, but you know these movie schedules half a year to a year in advance. Well, I think studios now, maybe we just know, maybe it's just more publicized now, but it seems like studios are very, very cognizant of their release dates now. Like they target that date, you know, two years out. I mean, of course, movies will often get moved around, but they really do covet certain weekends out there and do consider the scheduling when they want to release it. But, you know, for a film like this, it's a little smaller. I would have expected it to be more of a fall type of movie, not just, you know, yeah, this not was just April. This was yeah. April, an April release. Yeah. Yeah. Spider-Man came out early May. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it was May 3rd or something for Spider-Man. But anyway, the other piece of trivia I thought was interesting that you mentioned was James Cameron suggesting that he keep like the reveal of the crimes to the end there. What a different movie this might have been if he had gone with his original idea to reveal the crimes to the audience. It's kind of interesting because the thing is, you know, we'll get to it. But, you know, at the end of the movie, you have kind of two twists. Two surprises, in a sense. Yes, right. Instead of just the one. So it's kind of interesting that if this movie was just based on the twist that Fenton was, or Adam was indeed Fenton, and Adam was alive, I mean, that's really it. I found the other yeah. twist more interesting, the other surprise. So oh, I, I agree. This was a good choice. I think it is the right choice, depending on how they would have played it, because then there's a certain amount of irony where if we see it as the audience, so we then we believe Bill Paxton's character, you know, through the killing, but the kid doesn't see it. So then we're like, well, then, you know, then we're kind of left guessing what is the adult Fenton or Adam think about that if he never saw it, but we see it as true through the whole movie. I don't think that would have been a better choice, but it certainly would be, would have been a different experience. Yeah, and totally that agree. would be interesting to watch a phantom edit of that just to compare. Yeah, it'll be interesting if it was actually when Cameron made the suggestion if these scenes were actually filmed. Well, because they did show them, right? They did yeah. show the crimes at the end. So you just cut those back earlier in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how you'd do that from a dialogue. Yeah, I don't know how you'd make it differently. It would have been a different experience. There's no question. Mm, yes. Well, how about we get into this movie? And I agree with you that this movie is more simple. So we can maybe go back with respect to how we used to do it with an act structure. So let's talk about the first act here. We have Matthew McConaughey's character playing Fenton. Even though he's Adam, he's visiting the FBI office. And, and let's actually, before we can get into it, we got, didn't even talked about Powers Booth here, who's playing Agent Doyle. And this guy is a definite character actor. You know, he always <laughs> seems to play some kind of asshole, villainous character, untrustworthy kind of guy. You know, he plays it very well. Not to say anything mean about the guy. He might be a very nice guy in real life, but he certainly has the look and the voice and the demeanor playing someone you really don't trust. Yeah. I like Powers Booth, man. He's kind of like a poor man's Tommy Lee Jones, you know? <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, but I, I can't think about playing anything other than a cop or an FBI agent. I don't know him from too many things, except I just remember him in Sin City playing that bad guy. Oh, right. Right. So he was yeah. playing about kind of a mobster type of guy in, in Sin City. Yeah, I think he was in Tombstone. Was he in Tombstone? Yeah, yeah he, he was, was in Tombstone. Tombstone. He was one of the bad guys, one of the... Yeah, he was one of the bad guys of the Waltons Tombstone or whatever. And- Oh, and also the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, the hockey one, he played kind of like the bad guy, terrorist. Oh, yeah, that's right. My favorite role of his was in Rapid Fire with Brandon Lee, when he actually played a good guy for a change. He was the cop. They were it was almost buddy cop-ish between the two of them. And he was the gruff cop. And Brandon Lee was the young kid in Kung Fu. That's actually a pretty cool movie. That's, that's a rare antiquity for Powers Booth. So yeah, 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 you, should, you should recommend that one time in the distant future. <laughs> I may. It could happen. Yeah, I'd watch that. Powers Booth is a good guy. I got to see that. So, you know, Fenton comes in here, walks into an FBI office. He wants to specifically talk to Agent Doyle. And he says he knows who's the killer of God's hand case. And he sits down with Agent Doyle and says it's his brother, Adam. What did you think of this kind of set up and you had a couple of scenes where it showed the adult Adam he's telling the story how he's calling his brother he's gonna say he's gotta bury him in the rose garden and then you see Adam shoot himself and what do you think of these opening shots here and how this movie's introduced well I mean it's I'm always a little bit I always put my guard up a little bit when it's a dark and stormy night to open the film just because it's such a bad cliche so I just that remember Picard just putting, yeah. doing the face palm when he's reading that shitty, <laughs> that shitty episode about what is a casino? What was it? Yeah. The Royale? The Royale. It was a yeah. Dark and Stormy Night. And it's then he Dark and did, Stormy he did Night. Picard face palm. Uh, it was great. Yeah. Great episode. It was no, terrible episode. Terrible episode, but great episode. I mean, Matthew McConaughey's maybe overdoing it a bit in the FBI office because he's so clearly traumatized, I guess. Like he's. I don't know if it's overly emotional or, but you just, it's too obvious that there is something amiss here. Something is not as it seems. And I know that's what you go for with a psychological thriller, but I think it was a little bit too overplayed there. The scene with the phone call between the two brothers. I mean, that's fine at this point. Like, that's just sort of showing us what happened. But it's fine. I didn't feel too drawn in by these scenes. No, neither did I. And you're, you hit the nail on the head right here problem here is is now you're getting into another trope and ever since the usual suspects came out when you have somebody coming to admit something like this in a movie in a genre such as this your guard is automatically up and mm-hmm. it's like okay he's not telling the entire truth there's going to be a twist surrounding this guy and you're just automatically prepared for it and i didn't remember the ending in this movie but i was automatically just saying you know because it's also matthew mcconaughey now here's the other thing This is the problem when you have movies like this again. You've casted Matthew McConaughey in this role. He is not going to be in this role for a guy who's just going to tell the story of the officer in a monotone voice. Yeah. So you're expecting something else going to happen here. It'd be interesting if it was just... That was the first thing I thought. The first thing I thought is like, oh, well, is is he the other brother? Like, that was the first thing I thought. And you're right. It's because you expect a twist... And you ha- you cast a very prominent actor in the role. Yeah, and I think that's the unfortunate reality that Hollywood needs to, in general, and they do this in movies even today. I mean, you want to kind of keep your surprises. You need to have obscure actors playing those. You want those obscure twists. You can't be obvious. You can't show your card too early. That's and right. It's just unfortunate. So he starts to tell now the story, The God's Hand, and wants to tell the story of, you know, Adam and it's all his dad's fault and he got the vision from God and they show this it's summer of seventy nine in a small town of Thurman. Right away you can tell that this town is a small conservative biblical town. I got a kick out of it and this is where I use the Flanders influence is uh, the two boys are screaming or singing the I got joy, joy, joy Yeah, yeah. Down yeah, in totally. my heart. Where? <laughs> down in my heart and it's like <laughs> that was the first thing I wrote down. Oh, like, man. oh my God, it's Rod and Dot. It is. It's Rod and Todd. That kid gets beat up every single day. Oh, yeah. These kids need to get beat up, too. What <laughs> yeah. was going on? Well, they ended up murdering a bunch of people. So, yeah, they definitely needed to get beat up. And so, like, these two boys, you know, I should have, you know, done a little bit more research to who they were playing, which actors are playing these boys. But dad is played by, obviously, Bill Paxton here. And there's no mom. She must have died. I can't remember what happened with her. I believe she had died in the past. And, yeah, and then, you know, you get the setup of family life. And then very shortly after, like, this movie moves pretty quickly 
the dad in his sleep he has a vision that God has told him that he and his family have to kill demons the demons of the world and they will be God's hand and he tells his kids in the middle of the night waking them up and that's got to be a fucking mind bender for your kids and I even got a kick that younger Adam believes that they'll end up being like superheroes right yeah. they'll toss aside those who are not worthy just like Batman and Superman and Snyderverse so Fenton is non-believer here Adam is and it's not a surprise the young kid just wants to believe his dad and since his dad used the idea of superheroes to hook him in so there you go what did you think of this original setup like just right off the bat we're like maybe 10 minutes into the movie dad's you know woken the kids up and this is your MacGuffin well this works for me actually because I mean Bill Paxton kind of sells it you know he seems like he's scared and uncertain himself but he's had this vision so you know he's gonna he believes it so I thought that worked great I thought it worked well to have the boys be on either side of the issue right and you remember, it makes sense the younger kid would be you know he wants to believe his dad but the older guy you know the older kid Fenton he's too old to buy this kind of thing mm -hmm. you know you get the feeling that he maybe he wants to but it's just not ringing for him so this collection of scenes here i thought was pretty effective they create the idyllic small town america i thought bill paxton did a good job with setting that stage these earlier flashbacks were the higher point of the movie for me mm -hmm. from a stylistic perspective like it felt I wrote down it felt old, but it's not that it felt old. It just felt maybe a little more classic, like very simple yeah, shot very composition. Simple. I was, I was going to say the same thing. The way this was set up, it was very simple. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all exposition. There's not really a lot of stylistic choices here. It's just a simple story of a father and his family. There's nothing really special happening with any of the cinematography or the shots or anything like that. It's just wakes him up, tells him, and then he even starts talking about, you know, God will give him magical weapons later. Yeah. Let's get into it now. What did you think of the magical weapons? So we've got the axe because now th this is actually a really good shot. So it's mm -hmm. another day, you know, the kids are thinking that, you know, okay, maybe dad just had a nightmare and it's a bunch of bullshit and it's going to go away. Everything's going to go back to normal. And then Fenton's telling the story of his dad having the vision and the audience is seeing Bill Paxton's character having the vision as he's driving along. And that was a pretty cool shot where you see the light from the clouds coming in on, on this farm on the side of the road. He walks in there and this is where he finds the axe and the gloves. And I believe he finds the pipe, which will now be referred to as the inanimate carbon rod because everybody <laughs> loves the rod. A rod. <laughs> what did you think of these scenes and the reveal of these weapons? Were you a bit confused? Yeah. And... No, I, I don't I, I mean, it was a cool shot. I mean, heavy-handed, but we're sort of seeing what Fenton is telling the FBI agent what his father would have told him that he saw. So it was appropriate that it was a little over the top and that, you know, the beam of light coming in through, you know, the barn landing on this axe. At first, I was intrigued why it had a name, Otis. Yeah. But because that was never explored, I wondered why it had the name Otis. You know, that acronym that you mentioned before, notwithstanding, but unless that's only the innocent survive, unless if that's a thing from Christian mythology, like specifically, okay, but I don't think that it is. No, um, it's not. And that's just so, a theory. I don't think it's ever yeah. explained. That started to bug me later, but the scenes themselves were neat. The trio of weapons, you know, sort of mirrors the Holy Trinity, and there's the three of them. So I thought they were each going to get their own weapon, like that flaming sword that that angel had. And Yeah, what did you the, think of that scene when he's in the garage doing the work, and you see that, I guess, that stylistic... That's the one real effect shot of the movie, yeah. where you see that angel kind of falling... Because there's sparks happening around him when you were working in the garage. The angel right. comes towards him. I thought that was a pretty cool shot. Yeah, it was kind of a cool shot. But it also didn't seem too consistent either with the rest of the film. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't sure what to make of it at the time. I mean, when I saw that, I'm thinking, okay, well, he's just crazy. Yeah. He's seeing things. So it was a cool shot. But yeah, it didn't seem to fit. Oh, mm -hmm. well, yeah, that's interesting. And now that you mention it, I agree. I think because you really don't get other shots like this. This is really the only time where you see something like that. And it's very biblical and it's very straight laced at the audience. And you're seeing what he is actually seeing with respect to God talking to him. Because the other time mm -hmm. he's just saying, I, you know, God talked to me. Now you're actually seeing what he's seeing. Then, yeah, it's a little inconsistent with the rest of the story. 
So now that he's got these weapons and he's shown them to the kids, now Fenton's getting a bit more concerned. And again, you know, he's talking to his brother, I want to run away, will you come with me? But they decide they don't because they don't want to leave their dad. And he's praying to God, or not praying to God, but he's kind of just praying with respect to hope that nothing bad will happen and his dad is just not going to do anything. But then I guess his dad starts to get the list, starts writing names down. And they wake up one night and, you know, he's brought home a middle-aged woman, knocked her over the head with a pipe and... And he calls the kids out, brings them in, and you get your first victim here. So what did you think of these scenes and how it was played out? Because this will really be the end of Act 1. So I thought this worked fairly well. It was, you know, it's kind of chilling. You have the dad bringing his kids in when he's going to murder this woman. And at this point, I was still asking myself the question, is he crazy or was his vision real? So, you know, when he kind of reaches out to, you know, reveal the demon with his hands, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. You know, I thought well, maybe we will get sort of a vision or, a, you know, something obvious to show us that this is for real. Um, is that what you were expecting or hoping? Well, I, actually I, was, I wasn't sure. I don't know what I was hoping for. I was hoping to, but I found myself watching. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to know what was going on. Like I wanted to know one way or the other. And at first, because he grabs her and she kind of reels back a bit. So at first I'm like, oh, okay, it is real. But then you watch it a little bit more and she's just terrified so i'm like okay well did something happen there or not he actually shakes and convulses a little bit yeah he shakes and convulses so he could just be crazy right right so i thought that that was played fairly well you know his performance sold that well because you know then we still don't know you could take it either way from there so it's good that they kind of kept it under wraps still at, at this point hmm. it's pretty chilling the dude's got an axe murder this lady so yeah and right in front of the kids so yeah that, that's the interesting thing so after he kills the woman adam says young adam says uh, you know I, I could see what you see dad i i saw the demon and fenton obviously did not and that's the crux of the movie uh, not the crux of the movie that's the main meat and potatoes of what's driving the conflict for the rest of the movie so this is really the end of act one here so now based on this end point you know you've already mentioned you're intrigued because you're still wondering if it's real or if he's just crazy. Aside from that, based on the setup, the way this movie's filmed, these characters, what are your thoughts here at this point? Yeah, at this point, I mean, a few things. Once they go back, I wasn't all that taken with Powers Booth or Matthew McConaughey. So when we got away from them, and basically we find out that this movie's actually about the kids. Mm. You know, really, they're the main characters. Yeah, I thought that the kids were pretty decent when it comes to... When it came to performances, yeah, no, they were, I thought they did a, a fantastic good. job, actually. Yeah. And that's tough. As we've discussed before on the show, that's a really tough thing to do is to get good performances out of kids. One kid's a little older, so that's the age where you can start to do a little better. But the younger kid, I thought he did a really good job. Stylistically, again, everything's very simple. I thought it fit the tone at this point. So, yeah, I'm getting more drawn into it now that we're back in time. I was hoping for a little bit more out of Bill Paxton's performance. Not that, you know, it was appropriate for what he was doing, but, you know, I always get excited to see him. So I want to I want yeah, him to blow the doors off, right? Him, but I think at this point, he's playing kind of a really straightforward guy mm-hmm. who's just had this vision. And if he goes more reserved or more which is more stalker, kind of like silent serial killer level or over dramatic joker level, crazy, then I think you might lose something there. So I think yeah. there's something to him just playing it simple. He needs to play it how he's playing it. Uh, there's no question. You, can't, you couldn't go further in either direction, but perhaps this is where we see some of Bill Paxton's limitations as a performer because there isn't a lot of small stuff. There isn't a lot of nuance here, then you can kind of go in deeper where he is. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to go outside, like, you know, to the left or to the right, playing more conservative or crazier, because that wouldn't work. We need him to go deeper into where he's at. That's not Bill Paxson's wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Bill Paxson's big. He's stealing scenes. He's chewing scenery. He's not this quiet guy. So an interesting choice for him to choose this role as for himself. Mm-hmm. As the director, certainly capable. I'm with it so far. Yeah, I'm with it so far too. I completely agree with you that, you know, getting away from the adult Fenton, who is Adam, and then also Agent Doyle, they weren't really much of the focus, anyways. That's just to kickstart the movie. Once you really get knowing, it's about really about the kids and the relationship with their dad. And I think that's where the strength of this movie lies, at least in this first act. So let's move into act two. Really, the bulk of this act here is the killings. So we have the abduction of 
the elderly man in the mall. And then we have the sheriff as Fenton has just had enough and grabs the sheriff. So let's talk about these two ones here first. So with the elderly man, what was your take of them getting away with it in daylight? Did you find this thing? What the fuck is going on? And it's just because did they just get lucky or did this kind of intrigue you that they managed to abduct this guy in a mall parking lot with nobody finding them, nobody noticing at all? And that's because Bill Paxton's character is saying God's going to protect us because we're demon slayers. Well, yeah, the, I think it fits with what they're trying to do, which is make you wonder what's real. I think even though they get away with it, I mean, I'm starting to lean towards now that it's, you know, they're not slaying demons. They're they're just killing people because dad's crazy. Getting away with the mall parking lot. Yeah, that didn't bother me. Shit. Every, people love looking the other way. You know, oh, that's true. So. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> yeah, that is true. You know, uh, this is the states. It's, oh, yeah. so, okay, okay, no problem. I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't see nothing. I didn't Move see along. nothing. That was okay. You know, when he's digging that hole. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So now, but I think that's after the sheriff. So let's talk about the sheriff. So he brings the elderly man home, right? I believe yeah. that's the. Oh no, the hole came first. You're right. So the hole came first after the first murder. Because Bill Paxton says that God says that, Fenton, you're actually a demon, but I have faith in you. But you're going to have to, you know, do a trial. You're going to have to do something for us. And he digs that hole, which will become the cellar and they'll roll the shed over it. What did you think of those scenes? And then they had the abduction. They brought the elderly man home into that cellar. And then he he ran away to go grab the sheriff. So what did you think about that? The whole thing with building the hole, I thought, was pretty effective. You know, borderline child abuse. I guess, but... That comes later. (laughs) Yeah. I guess if you're ready to axe bash a guy's face in, telling your kid to dig a hole, but a big hole. What I liked about the hole, after he's done digging it, it's complete because he was, you know, the dad was telling him to pray, right? While he was digging the hole and Mm -hmm. finished the hole. I was like, I bet you didn't pray a single time, did you? And he's such a stubborn little brat that but we're also on his side because we're believing that, you know, Fenton's the one telling the story. So I thought that was played fairly well. Again, good performance by the kid. In real life, he doesn't have any skin left on his palms. But other than that, that's got to hurt. You know, I just do like, you know, I'm trying to plant like a fucking one plant in my, in my garden, in my backyard. And it's <laughs> like my, my hands are like, you know, ballooned up to the size of <laughs> watermelons. It's like fucking blisters. I don't know how this kid managed to do that massive cellar. They made them differently back in those days, I guess. So you could dig a hole. Yeah, that's true. Probably also set the record for the number of times hole has been mentioned on a podcast. So, <laughs> get me out of this horn. <laughs> A record we will seek to break someday, but that'll be a different conversation. (laughs) So he grabs the sheriff with the elderly man about to be killed, or or he did just get axed. He says he runs away, grabs the sheriff, tells him the story. Sheriff doesn't believe him, comes back, and then Fenton's dad kills him. And the interesting thing here is that you made me kill an actual man, not a demon, because the sheriff is not a demon from with respect to what God thinks or the God's hand thinks. So, what do you think of that revelation when he said that? Because then it's interesting, right? Because if he's, you know, if he's crazy and he, like, if he's delusional and he kills the sheriff, then what is delusion? You know, the sheriff was a demon as well. Like, if he was delusional, he might justify it that way. But his delusion's more complex than that. If he is delusional to, you know, to say, no, he wasn't a demon. So, and he was clearly shook up by it. He was throwing up after he killed him. So, you know, again, I, I think mean, that... Still, these are still the traits of a psychopath. Well, because well, they're, they're very... Not... Well, no, they're very particular. They're not the traits of a psychopath because the psychopath wouldn't be delusional. He just wouldn't care, right? The psychopath wouldn't feel anything for killing this man. He wouldn't care. He's just doing it because he can do it, right? He gets the thrill out of it. But a delusional man, that would be a little bit different. So what fits the delusion? In this case... It's either, you know, in his delusion, he's killing demons and then he killed the sheriff because he had to continue with his mission or it's actually real. So I, you know, I'm just trying to remember how I was kind of going along. And I think I was still on the edge of thinking that it was part of his delusion. Does this change here, Revelation, does this raise your eyebrows a little bit more? Is it more interesting now, now that this happened? He had this reaction to killing the sheriff? Is it more interesting now? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. But I think also he would have just run away at this point. Who would have run away? Well, I guess they locked him in the cellar at this point, didn't they? Fenton. Yeah, the sheriff got killed. The dad blames him for killing a real man, not a demon. Locks him in there for days. I mean, I know Adam comes and gives him water through some of the bases in the woodwork there. But a few days later, Fenton's pretty much near death there. And 
gets him out of there and then, you know, gives him food, gives him water, and Fenton feigns to believe that Fenton has had a change of heart. In reality, he's feigning that he believes in the mission now. And then they go abduct this white trash loser who probably is the one true person who deserved to get abducted, <laughs> at least from a dramatic perspective. I mean, the other people were revealed later in the movie to have committed terrible crimes as well, but this guy right off the bat's just a grade A loser, treating his wife like trash, and he just looks like a guy who just deserves to get worked seriously and Fenton helps his dad knock him out unconscious and they take him back and this is where the interesting thing happens here so Fenton I mean Fenton's dad wants him to do the do the final killing blow gives him the axe Fenton dramatically after classic Shatner pause does a spin turn on him and whacks his dad with the axe right in the chest chops him down for good she might as well have just said stick around you could have done that as well <laughs> so what did you think of these scenes and then also the dad is passing away he whispers something on the, the audience cannot hear but you pretty much know what he's saying to adam and that conversation what are your thoughts the abduction was good at this point. Again, I guess they did. A, he must have done a good job playing up the ambiguity because we see the guy come out of his house and he's yelling at his wife. And yeah, you you can tell this guy is just a slimy piece of human garbage. And so I'm thinking, all right, well, you know, maybe they are killing demons or at least bad hombres, as Donald Trump would say. <laughs> That was interesting there. It helps the ambiguity a little bit. You don't, you know, you can't go too far in either direction with the small clues they're giving you. I mean, I was sort of, I thought Fenton was going to axe the redneck dude and not turn the axe on his old man there. So that was a, that was a nice surprise for you. Yeah, that was a good surprise for me. And I also like the surprise of, uh, you know, as he rips the duct tape off the dude's head and then, and then you see the crazed small child, Adam with the ax coming right towards the camera. Yeah. With- you could say that God willed him to lift that thing, but my goodness, that young kid like that's not going to be able to do any damage with that ax. Well, as long as you can lift it up, gravity kind of does the rest. Depends how sharp it is, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I just like the shot. Yeah, was, you just like the shot because it's a nice little cool. surprise. No, I like this scene. I wouldn't say it caught me too much off guard because I was kind of, the whole movie's kind of led up to, you know, your, the audience is led up to believe that Fenton's a non-believer and that he's going to help stop. He, he goes as far as calling mm-hmm. the cop, the sheriff, and then he gets locked away. So, I mean, anyone who does that to me, I'd probably do the same thing to them, right? I mean, this guy's just crazy, whoever, yeah. like his father. So he's got to be stopped. No matter what the cost is. Just like Optimus Prime, Megatron must be stopped no matter the cost. So We you... didn't have the sweet rock organ to accompany <laughs> that axe slang there. Yeah, yeah you should have that. <laughs> that. We should edit that. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could have done that too. But yeah, I, I like this scene. And yeah, but what really caught me off guard was the fact that Adam came in and just finished the job. And But I love the interaction between Fenton and Adam there after his dad passes mm. away. He just says, okay, if you're going to destroy me... Just promise me to bury me in the Rose Garden. And I yeah. think Adam says something along the lines of, I promise I will, or something like that. Well, he says, like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely. It wasn't so much, uh, okay, it was more of like, you're goddamn right I'm burying you in the Rose Garden. Yeah, that was pretty fucking awesome. I that was good. That. Yeah. I love that scene there. So then we kind of cut away back to the present, where with adult Fenton and Agent Doyle arriving at the Rose Garden in Thurman. So this is kind of like we've passed the end of Act 2 and Act 3 based on the movie structure because it's so simple. We're pretty much almost near the end of the movie. We talk about, unless I'm missing something, I can't recall if I'm missing any scenes here, but I believe that it's just them having a discussion at the Rose Garden and Agent Doyle's kind of running through this whole story again. He's seeing an open grave there. And he says that, and he's kind of questioning that if Adam promised to kill Fenton, but Adam committed suicide, he's questioning that whole story. What did you think of the revelation? And I, I was really disappointed in this. It's just like, they kind of just simply, like Matthew McConaughey just kind of blurts it out. Well, what happens if I'm Adam? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's pretty much it. It was a bit anticlimactic because yeah. it was an idea that I'd had right at the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. That was indeed the case. And you uh, know what he... gave it away too earlier? Is when before the drive out to the town is they left the FBI office. I don't know if you noticed, but Agent Doyle was going to hit hand. Grab his head there. Yeah, grab his head there. And and Fenton moved his head away. He didn't want to be touched or have have any contact with the agent there. So that, to me, the minute that happened, I said, okay, this movie already gave away its main clue. This guy is Adam, and he is the God's hand. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously he did that on purpose because, again, psychological thrillers try to telegraph what's going to happen, but in a way that you can't, you know, that's not going to be immediately noticeable to the but audience. This was so noticeable. Uh, yeah, it was It was extremely noticeable. I mean, I noticed it right away. So when you saw that happen earlier in the film, and I should have mentioned it earlier. I knew that there was going to be a reason why he didn't want to be touched. But at that point, like, I didn't know that, you know, you could reveal the demon by touching it, right? Oh, yes. So I was just like, okay, well, obviously that's like that. That's a detail that's coming back later. So once it became apparent, I mean, about halfway through the movie, I made the note down here and I just asked myself, like, is this FBI agent, is he like the last demon on his list? Mm -hmm. Because it just seemed like he was luring him there. So, you know, that's the twist where he's his brother. Yeah, he's just like, well, what if I'm not Fenton? I'm actually Adam. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's... I don't know if there need to be, like, a big buildup of music and then a crackle of thunder in the background while he said it. Well, it's like when Palpatine revealed himself to Anakin. It's just like... Yeah, yeah, he's like, no, no, I'm... Lord. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm the Sith Lord. Lord. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, almost comical is how simple it is. It's like, that's yeah. it? That was the reveal? I almost prefer, like, you know, the Scooby game coming along and, like, unmasking the villain, you know, grabbing the guy's rubber mask off his face, Mission Impossible style. That would have been more fun, but it's not really what they do. No. Anyway. So, I mean, yeah, I'm 100% agree with you. I felt this was completely the way it was structured and it was so anticlimactic. It was just... They could have done something different here. I think Paxton could have done something with the direction and the writing could have been a little better. And I think also... I hate to say it again, like not a fan of Matthew McConaughey. I know this is one of his more earlier roles, but he's just playing it so monotone and straight and there's nothing. I guess that's kind of, you could say that's somewhat accurate of the character he's trying to portray, but it's just comes across as just so dry. It's just like, I don't care about this reveal. Mm -hmm. It's just like, oh, what happens if I'm Adam? Yeah, I'm Adam. And then he <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Then the movie cuts away to showing how, because he touches Agent Doyle, and Agent Doyle strangely becomes weak, and I don't understand why, because the other victims, I don't believe they became weak. I know they were tied up and gagged, but what happened with Agent Doyle here? Like, he just touched his head, and all of a sudden he, like, loses all strength in his legs, and he just collapses. Yeah, I didn't understand this. The power of Jesus in you. <laughs> Yeah, it's the power of Jesus. Because reasons, man. That's why. Yeah, that's why. It was. I thought that was really weak. I didn't like how this whole thing played out. And as Agent Doyle has collapsed from his weakness, it's revealed that he killed his mom for that vision. The audience sees it. And they show the story of how Fenton or Adam actually killed his brother Fenton. And I guess the last shot is that scene here is Adam standing, who is now Matthew McConaughey, is now revealed to be Adam stands over. Agent Doyle kills him. And then Agent Doyle says, well, you can't get away with it just before he dies. Uh, so many people saw you leave the FBI office. They know I'm with you. And he goes, don't worry. God will protect me. So after the death of Agent Doyle, we see the FBI agents wondering what happened to Agent Doyle. And they get out the lead because of Fenton. He is framed as brother for being the God's hand. And they go to Fenton's house. They see Fenton's dead. And they see all the lists there. And Agent Doyle's name was on that list as well. And then they're saying, but then who was the guy who was at the police station? And they said, okay, we can find it through the surveillance footage. And all the footage is static and can't see anything. And that's how, what did you think of that? It's, you know, earlier details coming back to pay off, right? Where we sort of see the full extent of how right the father was. God's tinkering with the tapes and sort of erasing people's memories. So, you know, that's fine. It's the full revelation of the truth, which is that it was all, all of it. Right. All of it was real. And then this is where that second surprise is, is that you find that these visions were in fact real. Yeah. It's yeah. not just the Adam is, Fenton is Adam. It's that these visions, all of this was real. God yeah. did tell him to kill these demons and all these people were actually evil people who had done evil yeah. deeds. And yeah. then uh, the movie ends. The FBI says, okay, well, we got to contact his brother who is revealed now to be a sheriff of Thurman. They go see Adam and he explains, you know, about what happened to his brother and all that stuff. And then as he leaves the sheriff, Adam shakes the FBI agent's hands and says, oh, you're a good person. And that's because, you know, that FBI agent probably hasn't committed any, any sins. And the movie ends there and it seems like he has a girlfriend who works in his office and she's in on it and the movie just ends. That's it. What did you think of that? Like this, oh. how this movie ended, the final twists here, and then the quick ending afterwards and how it wrapped up. I mean, I was satisfied with the revelation that it was all real the whole time. 
because they played it well throughout the movie, it all added up. I don't think that anything was inconsistent. So I was fine with that. Did you not see most of this coming? And that's something that I want to say is for me, even though I had seen it before and then some pockets and little nuggets were in my head and might have kind of alerted me about these spoilers, but to yeah. me it just seems so telegraphed. Both of well, these twists. Yeah, they were telegraphed. I think my most likely expectation was that they were going to kind of keep it really, really ambiguous. And then at the end, there would be some shot where he like kind of looks knowingly into the camera or something stupid like that, where we're left wondering if it was all real or not. Just like so, the end of uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller video, he just turns right. around and he's like the demon. <laughs> yeah, exactly like the, the end eyes. of Michael Jackson's Thriller. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, he turns to the camera. Matthew McConaughey's got green eyes, <laughs> and then moonwalks back into the police station <laughs> with Vincent Price laughing. Right. So <laughs> that would have been a good ending. So. I guess I'm glad that they just went all the way. Like there wasn't any ambiguity. They did the whole thing, you know, so that was satisfying, if not unpredictable. But again, like we talked about the genre, you can't really do anything unpredictable anymore. It's almost completely impossible. No. And I think that's part of the times we live in now too, is just, you just expect twist upon twist upon twist. So there are all yeah. these cases are already running through your mind after act one and yeah. dollars to donuts. You're going to get pretty close to the answer. So, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. In a movie such as this. And that's a shame. There's been so many movies that kind of replicate the same formula that we're now used to it and expect these kind of things that the audience really can't be as surprised anymore about anything. That's too bad. So that does it for frailty. So let's just talk about the performances here. So we have Bill Paxton. We have Matthew McConaughey. We have Powers Booth. We have the kids. Who's the real standout performances for you? Anyone who disappointed you? Did you expect more? What are your thoughts on the act? Yeah, as I've touched on already, I think the kids were the standout performers here. I thought they did both of them a very good job all the way through. I mean, I'm not going to say I was overly disappointed with anybody's performance. Powers Booth is Powers Booth. He gives you what he gives you. That's why you hire the guy, right? That's what you hire character actors for. Matthew McConaughey is certainly capable of much more, but again, he's not really the star of the show either. He's there just telling the story. You know, and Bill Paxton, it's an odd choice. Like that role's not what we're used to out of him. So maybe a little bit disappointed with that. Could he have chosen somebody other than himself to play that role? Like could Matthew McConaughey have been the dad? That might have been more interesting. And then Bill Paxton wouldn't have been in the movie at all. And and just have some other dope as... And I think that would have been the better choice. And yeah. it's not because Bill Paxton did a terrible job, as I said. It's just nothing special. And if he went in one extreme or the other, either too silent or too crazy, then I don't think it would have been the right choice. But I think if you had Matthew McConaughey play that role and the unknown playing Fenton in the FBI office, an unknown actor was still okay capable of acting but he's not a star you're not expecting anything with him and then he ends up being the twist i think that could have been a more interesting choice and maybe preserved a little bit more of the surprise yeah because then you can use an actor's name to play against to help you fool the audience the name recognition or lack thereof to help fool your audience and that's sometimes what you need stars for now especially when you're doing a psychological thriller as i said um, also or they could have gone the complete extreme you could have had Sylvester Stallone be Fenton, my brother could have been Arnie, and Bruce Willis could have been the dad. Or some combination of that, and you'd just keep people guessing. <laughs> we would have kept people scratching their heads, that's for sure. <laughs> How are these people related? <laughs> that's a weird suggestion, man. That's a really weird one. Hey, man, I believe it. I'd watch it. I don't know that I'd believe it. I returned, and I found out my son was a nerd. <laughs> So yeah, so anything else on Frailty here? How about the direction now? How about, because this is Bill Paxton's directorial debut. We've mentioned a couple times, this is a very simple, straightforward movie. I mean, we're at record time of finishing a movie on the podcast here, I think. Yeah, yeah. So this is very straightforward, and I really couldn't have broken it down because I don't think there'd be any more value. Breaking down scene by scene, we pretty much covered practically everything that happened in the movie. Mm. That's how quick it is. And what did you think of the way the story was drawn out and the way Paxton was able to effectively manage these scenes with respect to how dramatic it would have been and how it played out there. Yeah, you've got a tough job as a director making a movie like this because, you know, you don't have a lot of tools in your toolbox for, you know, what's basically a pretty small film, small in scope anyway. So the tools that, you know, are in your toolbox when you're making something like this 
is shot composition, lighting, soundtrack, performance, and writing. That's kind of all you have to work with here. You don't have hyper-stylized action or special effects or big budget, high concept stuff. Like you're, you've got small things and that like, that's not a bad thing. I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing. In many, many cases, that can be a good thing, but the fewer tools you have, the better director you kind of need. Somebody who has a lot of talent to manage small stuff like that. It was certainly a capably made movie, but nothing added to really much of anything, you know, so was it his goal just to kind of play it simple and straight so that we're guessing to the end? Maybe that was his intention. And in, in some ways, it was successful there, but it never really elevated itself in any way there because he just really didn't do too much. You know, and when you're going to be minimalist like that, I think you need to really be smart and talented with your minimalism. And I, and I don't and I think it was technically capable, but just didn't pop, you know? Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, it didn't pop. And you had to probably keep it very simple, as you said, use the word minimalist. Maybe that was his intention to play out the surprises a little. So that was the pop, was the surprise, because it's such a simple movie and there's nothing, you know, that's kind of too shocking up to then with respect to twists. So maybe that is what the whole, I should say, I mean, that's the climax of the movie, but maybe that's really your shock value. That was, he's just playing it off that and maybe that's more effective that way. You know, it's hard to argue for or against that point because the way yeah. this movie is structured and the story it's telling, because there's not really much else you can do. But with respect to cinematography, shots, I mean, there were a couple of nice shots. We mentioned the farm where he finds the axe and the gloves. Even when adult Adam, you know, feigning to be Fenton and Agent Doyle arrive at the gravesite or in the Rose Garden. I mean, there were some nice shots through the fog, but I mean, it looked very simple as well. I mean, it just looked mm. like a fog machine on a soundstage and... It looked like somebody's first time directing and maybe he chose this story because this was his debut and it was not too complicated for him to gain this kind of experience. Then he kind of played it safe and that's kind of how I would use the direction in this movie. It was safe. Yeah. And that's too bad. I can't recall if he tried directing anything else. Um, I'd be surprised if he did, but I mean, if he did, yeah, I'd like to see how he managed to evolve beyond what we see here. But unfortunately, it was just nothing too special. I feel like this would have made a good episode of The X-Files. Yeah, that's kind of a thought I had, too, is when I watched this. This felt like kind of like a, a TV movie, science fiction episode, TV show, something X-Files, Supernatural. Something along those lines where it's just like kind of something weird. I mean, X-Files is your best bet there. Twilight Zone. I agree completely. It felt like a TV episode. There's nothing yeah. really special that's going on here with the soundtrack, with cinematography, with any special effects. There's nothing here. It's just very straightforward and simplistic. He did direct after this. He didn't do much. But uh, what I thought was the most interesting part or piece of the film is there's a bit of ambiguity when it comes to good and evil here. So, yes, we are led to believe that these are demons that they're slaying. But really, at no point is Matthew McConaughey as Adam portrayed as heroic, especially at the end, the way they shoot him and the and the way that he plays it at the end. This is still a guy who yeah, kid, they played kidnaps him as people and still a stalker. You know, yeah. stand, I think that's more of the way the movie has to be presented to the audience with respect to the thriller. He's got to be standing over him with the axe to deliver that final blow. It can't be like more of, you know, I'm saving the world by removing you from it. You know what I mean? Instead, they went the traditional horror route. I just think it's an interesting comment on the type of God that they're saying this God is. This is an Old Testament God. I absolutely, I think you are. This is the Old Testament God. You can interpret this isn't Jesus turning the other cheek or anything like that. Like, I mean, this is a God who doesn't give two shits about Miranda rights, due process, <laughs> or any of that shit. Go get that motherfucker. Yeah, well, justice must be served. You're not getting far with an axe named Otis in your hands, though, dude. Like, you're. <laughs> I got my gun named Otis Bird. You're getting capped <laughs> quick. <laughs> For sure. But pretty boy like Matthew McConaughey, that he could be walking down the middle of Bain Street with that thing dripping wet blood off of it and people wouldn't stop him. All the ladies would still want to just say, he. first yeah. of all, he wouldn't be wearing a shirt. No, he, he would not. He, he'd be all oiled up. He'd be glistening. He'd no be doubt. glistening and yeah. he'd just let the girls just come right all over him. Yeah, he'd be just trying fun. to flex his pecs. Well, yeah. Uh, and then twirling his Lincoln car keys, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And monologuing into the camera. I thought that that was interesting, like, because if they're saying that God is real, then it's, uh, you know, it's the vengeful, angry God. Because it's not heroically played at the end there, I thought that was uh, the most interesting thing. They don't really go anywhere with it. I agree with that. Someone can interpret it that way. I just don't think that the filmmakers are trying to make that statement. 
this is what? just kind of just the end capping scene of a psychological thriller. And ta-da, he's the killer. And no, but it show is... him menacing over him. And Even if it's not menacing, but it is still God telling him to do it. But if you look at how Paxton, then maybe there is more nuance to Paxton's performance here. Because if you look at the way Paxton played it, he played it like he was trying to save the world by removing these demons. Yeah, he was more heroically. He was more heroic. He's playing it more on that level. Yeah. Matthew McConaughey just looked like an evil fuck. He looked like a serial killer. He looked like Christian Bale sort of in American Psycho. Like just yeah. that cold, yeah. soulless, blank stared. So Matthew McConaughey in real life. He's playing himself. The shell of Matthew McConaughey <laughs> after his soul was sucked out by Tom Cruise. No, but I'm just saying that's the difference. That's what I mean is I would expect the consistency to be where if they're trying to make a statement still, like if Paxton's character was playing like Matthew McConaughey through the whole thing, then I think what you're saying makes more sense. I just think because this is the end of the movie and that's your surprise. And you got that top down shot of Matthew McConaughey standing over him. And he's going to deliver that death blow. He looks like, you know, Jason or Michael Myers at that point without the mask. That's your horror shot. And that's for dramatic purposes only. So I understand where you're coming from. I just don't think that the filmmakers and Bill Paxton is trying to make that statement. I disagree. I think you're wrong. Okay. Feel free to disagree. I don't think they're trying to say anything about... I feel free to disagree, and I may axe murder you for it. Okay. If you get your axe, if you're going to destroy me... I'll make sure it says Otis Berg. That's what I was just going to say. That. <laughs> I want Otis Berg on the weapon. I will bury you in the Rose Garden. In William Shatner's Rose Garden. <laughs> yeah, I'll bury you in William Shatner's Rose Garden. I'm sure he'll be, he'll there, be cool. There I can find peace. Well, that does it for today's episode, Frailty. So just before we end here then, Jeff, let's give your final thoughts and recommendations then. Do you recommend this movie? Is it a rare antiquity? My recommendation's kind of meh. It was not a bad film at all, but I don't know. I think there's better examples of the psychological thriller. So if you're a fan of Bill Paxton and who isn't, then if you want to see him do something a little bit different, sure, but eh. And as far as rare antiquity goes, no, I don't think so. You know, there's nothing really innovative here or, or noteworthy. So, you know, this, this film is overlooked, and I think that having watched it now, I know understand why. Yeah, I think I'm in mostly agreements with you. Is It's not a terrible film by any means, but it is not special enough to say it warrants a must-see watch. So my recommendation is on the mess side, I'd say almost more or less not recommend and not a rare antiquity. So that does it for this show now. So the episode is done. <laughs> Frailty <laughs> is not... <laughs> <laughs> Frailty was not very good, and I think we agree. So, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Care to enlighten us what's That's, You're so proud time. of yourself, too. It's really sweet. <laughs> this is how I fly, man. Keep on keeping on, man. What's happening next time? What do you got in store for us? Well, Mr. Glass, we are going to take a look at M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable. Okay. We're going, <laughs> we're going straight from psychological thriller to psychological thriller. Yeah, I figure, why not? Let's see if we can get a streak going here. I think there's quite a number of similarities between the two movies here. You know what? Now that you say, I think you would be correct. And that is not what I had intended because I had kind of picked this movie before I watched Frailty. But hey, coincidences. Unbreakable it is. Until next time. Thanks for joining us today and I'll see you next time. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.